seated. You please pray with me. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my God, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Most of us are familiar and would um, agree that water is a gift. We talk about the gift of water. Water gives life to plants and to animals, to people. Um, water is cleansing, it cleanses dirt. Um, it's a mode of spiritual cleansing for many different religions, not just um, Christianity and baptism. It's a place of recreation. Uh, again, we're in Minnesota, the land of 10,000 lakes, and so there's lots of water um, here. Um, where's Roger? Roger's a water guy. We have Roger who makes our, our water safe. I don't know if you knew that, but he's a, he's a water engineer or environmental engineer guy. So the water is a gift, um, and clean water especially is, is essential. Um, but water can also be hazardous. Um, we learn to swim. Uh, depth of pools is controlled. Um, there are lifeguards and flotation devices, um, lots of training for boating and different things because water is also, it's a serious business. It's, it's a serious thing. It can be hazardous. There are hurricanes and floods. Those are some of the most extreme things. Um, or in Minnesota, I don't, you know, water, or snow is a form of water. I mean, I guess it's in the water cycle. Um, and we got a lot of it. Um, Lord, protect you and myself and my home from ice dams. I have got some serious um, icicles, like hazardous <laughs> icicles um, hanging from my house. Um, so water is a gift, but it can also be hazardous. And geographically, um, water is very commonly understood as a boundary. In an age uh, where we have airplanes and bridges and ferries, um, we can forget this, the fact that water is a very hard and fast boundary, but it is. It's a major obstacle, a geographic feature. But in the ancient mind, um, including the biblical mind, the biblical authors, bodies of waters were often um, distinct boundaries between lands and peoples, um, and in the minds of uh, pagans, many people around them, the boundaries of gods, like where was the territory of a certain god. And in Greek mythology, uh, we have the river Styx, which was a boundary uh, between earth and the underworld. And so wa water is a boundary between places. I mean, think we have, at least in many spots within the Twin Cities, the Mississippi River being a boundary between Minneapolis and St. Paul. Um, Lake Street Bridge has a mark point in the middle point of the bridge saying this side is Minneapolis, this side of St. Paul. Um, but if you're in the river itself, you're in sort of a space in between. There's not like I'm in the Minneapolis side of the river or the St. Paul side of the river. River is itself a boundary and a space between. God's word um, recognizes both the gift of water, the hazard of water, and the boundary of water. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In itself, from the very beginning, water is formless and void. It's even, in some ways, chaotic. 
Yet God governs and commands water for his purposes and hovers over the face of the waters from the very beginning. For Noah and his family um, in the Bible, the flood was an apocalyptic, uh, apocalyptic judgment upon the earth. For Moses and the Israelites, the Red Sea um, was an obstacle before it became a pathway um, to rescue. And the people, remember, the, we, we forget because they were ultimately rescued, but the people despaired of having their backs to the sea and facing the Egyptians before them. And after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, the Jordan River was a boundary, sort of a, a point of no return as the people entered into the promised land. On the other side of that boundary, as they crossed into it, they would face many um, perils, many foes, as they sought to take this land which God had promised for them. They've faced many strong and wicked nations, um, some literally giants, nations of giants. Yet in all of these situations where water was a boundary or a hazard, um, God transformed the obstacle into a way of salvation. That for Noah and his sons and their wives and Moses and then later Joshua and leading the Israelites, they emerged through chaotic waters with an opportunity for new creation and just a whole new fresh start and a new opportunity to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They were delivered from their enemies and from slavery and from sin and death in some way and they were given this opportunity to journey towards the promised land of God's people, to move towards God's promises through what had otherwise been an obstacle and a hazard. And so I think this general context of water, um, and more specifically, the several water crossings that I've named, um, the, uh, the flood and the Red Sea and uh, the crossing of the Jordan, they give us some insight into what is going on in Jesus' baptism. Even John the Baptist himself um, protested and didn't yet understand. Um, so clearly, uh, Jesus' baptism wasn't just self-evident. It needed some explaining and some context. And so we're going to reflect um, this afternoon of how was Jesus' baptism by John a fulfillment of all righteousness? Why was it John consented and then things really opened up? There was an, an epiphany of Jesus, the Son of God. Now the Jordan wasn't just any river, um, as I mentioned. It was a boundary between wilderness and promised land. It was the river that the Israelites crossed with Joshua after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And so John's baptism of Jesus at that place and his baptism of many different people at that place of the Jordan was a symbolically loaded um, location. It wasn't just here's some water, but here's this water. Here's the water of the Jordan. Being baptized in the Jordan was like stepping back in time in some way of re-entering the promised land. And John's baptism wasn't merely repentance um, from personal sins, although I'm sure all those other figures, except for Jesus, had personal sins to repent of, to confess. But it was a collective, um, a symbolic action of re-entering this land, a land that was now occupied um, by a new power, by the Romans, and um, ruled over by oppressors like collaborators like Herod, and a place where there was thick spiritual darkness, even um, in the temple, even in spiritual authorities within um, the Jewish faith. 
It meant that the people that were baptized were identifying with and repenting of the ways that all the preceding time God's people had disobeyed him, had not trusted in him. Repenting of sin and injustice and ways in which they had trusted in other nations for their security and trusted in other authorities in the place of trusting in God. And so how's this for a loaded action within Jesus' baptism? Jesus, whose name is uh, sort of the, the, the Greek translation of Joshua, it's the same, basically the same name, begins his ministry with baptism at the River Jordan where the first Joshua and God's people first entered into the land. So it's, a, it's pretty right there up in your, in your face. And Jesus was not repenting of any sin of his own, but re-entering and reenacting the exodus of God's people, um, the exodus of God's people, but for all people, not just the Israelites. The word uh, recapitulate, um, it's a good dictionary lookup word, um, good theological word. It means to repeat a process, to kind of back up and um, show again. And through Jesus, God recapitulates several things all at the same time in a really glorious way in the baptism of Jesus. In a recapitulating all of them at the same time to fulfill all righteousness. It's kind of like, um, at least for me, it's a helpful image to think of how when I strike a chord on a guitar, there's multiple frequencies, but you hear them all kind of at once, right? I could play each of those notes individually, and yet as a chord, they kind of come at you all at once. And so I think similarly, the, the flood, Exodus, Joshua's crossing of the Jordan River are all distinct events or notes, if you will, within this chord. They're separated by hundreds, um, if not thousands of years. And yet in the striking of this chord, in this event, in Jesus' baptism, the beauty and the unity of God's salvation and the unity between all of those different events and God's salvation plan is revealed. Um, As Jesus recapitulates, as he shows again, all these things in some um, sort of uh, symbolic way and fulfills all righteousness. So Jesus is first, he's a new Joshua whom God uses to liberate the land. His name, again, is the most obvious connection here, but also Jesus' authority, um, he's a man of strength and of authority and power. As Luke writes in our reading from Acts, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him, and with him in um, very marvelous, miraculous ways. And so Jesus is a new Joshua whom God uses to liberate the land. But Jesus is also a new Moses who leads people out of slavery to sin and death. And we spend a lot of time thinking about Moses, thinking about the Exodus um, more traditionally within the season of Lent. But Moses led the Israelites through the Red Sea, but then on the other side, they only went on to wander and be tempted in the wilderness for 40 years. And so similarly, immediately after Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit drives him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. Again, these connections are really, really rich. It's, again, striking of a chord and all kind of coming at the same time. 
And Jesus came not to abolish the law um, that came through Moses or the prophets, but to fulfill them. And he is fulfilling all righteousness as a new and a better Moses. And finally, Jesus recapitulates Noah's salvation through the waters. In our Genesis reading, we're told that 40 uh, days after the tops of the mountains could be seen on the earth, Noah sent out a raven. Um, ravens, I, I like birds, I like bird watching, but I, I don't particularly like ravens. They're kind of, or crows, they're kind of bullies, um, and I know what they eat. <laughs> um, ravens are scavengers, um, they're birds that eat dead things. Uh, we've all seen ravens or crows eating roadkill. And after the flood, um, you can imagine all the different kinds of things that a raven might scavenge. Um, and so the raven is sent out, and I guess we might say predictably, it doesn't come back. When the raven did not return, then Noah sent out a dove. And because doves have a homing instinct, right, they, they return to the place from which they were sent, uh, they return to their roost, a dove seems like a very perfect, very suitable um, scout to scout out dry land. And so first, the dove flew out and found no place to rest and returned to its roost, as, again, that homing instinct it would do. And then seven day, days later, the dove flew out, uh, found signs of life, and I don't know whether it's miraculous that it grabs the olive branch, but I think it's, again, it's acting according to its nature, it's returning to its roost, but bringing a sign um, of life. And then finally, seven days later after that, the dove left the ark and did not return. Now, often our readings of the flood, I think, are so fixated on Noah's ark and all the other creatures that are within it and um, the receding flood and how can Noah and his family begin the work of new creation um, that I, most of the time, I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about the, well, where did the dove go? This bird with a homing instinct, where did it, where did it go? I think we are. We're again focused on, okay, Noah and his family and all these animals, they've been in the ark, the stinky ark, for almost a year or more than a year. Um, it's time for them to get out. And we forget to ask that question. Where did the dove go? Because doves aren't scavengers like ravens, and they are faithful to their home. And so I think in the baptism um, of Jesus, we have the answer, God's answer, thousands of years later, and it's this. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The dove returned to Jesus. Jesus, the ark of a new covenant, like the, the vessel through which all things are saved, through whom all things are made new. Jesus is the ark of our salvation. He's the one who fulfills all righteousness, who could recapitulate everything, every salvation thing that God has done and do it um, perfectly in all righteousness. He's the secure refuge who preserves us through deep, destructive and chaotic waters of life, even um, the waters of death. And his church is the ark of new creation. 
The writers of the Book of Common Prayer within our baptismal liturgy um, include this following prayer, um, which is very consistent. If you look at church fathers, many of them ask the question of where did the dove go? Um, maybe because they were much more familiar with that homing instinct or it was much more of a practical thing. But the writers of the Book of Common Prayer include this following prayer. Almighty and everlasting Father, in your great mercy you saved Noah and his family in the ark from the destruction of the flood prefiguring the sacrament of baptism. Look mercifully upon these, your servants, wash and sanctify them with your Holy Spirit that they may be delivered from destruction and received into the ark of Christ's church. So John's baptism of Jesus was a baptism into and identifying with the deep and chaotic waters of life, um, but waters of life through which only Jesus could navigate with all righteousness. And our baptism into Christ in water and the Holy Spirit is a baptism into that saving life, into the salvation of Jesus' life. The ark, the crossing of the Red Sea, the Jordan River, all of these things prefigured Jesus' life, his life which preserves us and saves us from sin and death itself. And so just as God did for Moses and for Joshua and Noah, God makes water a way of salvation for us as well through baptism. And we'll reflect on this next week as well because I was looking again at the lectionary and it talks about Jesus' baptism again um, in the Gospel of John. But the emphasis is that people who are free, free people. Free people, free people. We don't stay holed up in the ark of Christ's church with stale air and cramped quarters um, and stinkiness until the end of time, until Jesus returns. We are gathered and we are sent out from Christ's church. We are people of new creation who are given a new command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the Holy Spirit is with us. God puts his Holy Spirit upon us to do good, to proclaim liberation and healing with authority, to free those who are oppressed by the devil. And we, are in, we, ha we have faith, but we are people who are even victorious against giants, against powers that seem far too great for us. Jesus sent the Spirit for us not merely as a guarantee of future eternal life, though it is, but to free us to be free, to anoint us to do what he has done and even greater works today. Not merely to cope in deep waters, but um, as Peter did, sometimes even seemingly to walk upon water. And so Church of the Redeemer, as we think of the way in which Christ fulfilled all righteousness, that life of Christ within you, be steadfast in faith joyful through hope and rooted in love that you may pass through the turbulent floods of this troublesome world and come into the land of everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. If you please stand with me, let's respond uh, to the preaching of God's word um, through the words of his church and proclamation of